fun. My team's playing your team. It's only spicy because if my team wins, they're gonna shoot your team. Welcome to Election Night on HBO's official Succession podcast. I'm Kara Swisher. This week, the Roy sibling drama may very well decide the next president of the United States. If I lose, I want it correctly characterized as a huge victory. Fuck you. This is about the future of the country. So glad I didn't drop out. It just makes an election so much more interesting when you're in it. Today, we're diving into the fever dream that is episode eight with none other than series creator Jesse Armstrong. And then I'm joined by political consultants Ben Ginsburg and John Klein, who advise the succession writers on the true insanity that is election night in America. And they should know. Ben was a lawyer and political advisor who played a central role in the Bush-Cheney administration, and John is a political analyst and former president of CNN. This episode, titled America Decides, was written by Jesse and directed by Andre Parekh. It's election night, ATN's biggest holiday. Tom is running the show and things aren't going well. Wasabi in people's eyes, touchscreens malfunctioning, it's mayhem. Plus, the election gets hairy when a fire in Milwaukee destroys pivotal ballots. So much happens in this episode that it's much easier to just say where things end up. Kendall and Roman and Tom call the election for Mencken. Shiv is left devastated for many reasons. Petty sibling rivalry deciding the fate of the country? I shouldn't be surprised these kids did not get hugged enough, but boy, I am so disappointed. Information. No guarantee. Greg. It's like a bottle of fine wine. You store it, you hoard it, you save it for a special occasion, and then you smash someone's fucking face in one. Joining me now to talk about this very upsetting episode is series creator Jesse Armstrong. Oh, hey, Kara. Glad to be back. Let's start with the season is leaning heavily into the power of the Roy family and especially of ATN in national politics. At what point did you know you wanted this final season to lead into a presidential election? Always wanted to do a presidential election. So it's just been a question of when. It was part of the discussions of whether this should be the final season and the placement of when the election would take place in the arc of the seasons. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was one of the reasons for wanting to just go out with this last one that I, I felt like it. I wanted it to be near the end and that with where I wanted Logan's demise to fall, it helped to make the decision for this to be the, the final season. Yeah, I've always felt like, well, you know, they have a bunch of things, this family, but what is their primary way of acting on the culture and the political world? It's their news channel and an election is the best vehicle for seeing that. It certainly calls to mind the Murdochs and the Fox News when they did that, which went the other way, right? When they turned on on the Republican figure in that case. In Arizona. In Arizona, yeah. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, we use real life analogs and we think about them a lot, but we hopefully don't slavishly follow a jumping off point for what we want to do in this fictional world. And I guess it's just a curiosity, one, it's a curiosity of the American system, of which there are a number, that the news organisations have this outsized role in calling the election, right? It's not, you're not hearing the election result, you're hearing news organisations predicting the election result. And that's an interesting pressure point that they have on the system. Right. Absolutely. And then it matters. It mattered a great deal in Arizona. And here it's the election is derailed by a fire in Milwaukee that burns a bunch of ballots, presumably for the Democratic candidate. Where did this idea come from? Because it takes the opposite tack because nobody knows what to do in this situation. Yeah. So we were looking at scenarios in which the call 
becomes incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And we had some brilliant consultants with whom me and the team talked through a bunch of scenarios in which it would not be entirely clear what should happen. You know, some dark things have happened in American politics in recent years. It's pretty clear what the outcome after January the 6th should have been in a constitutional sense. I guess we were keen on finding a situation which be more unclear, like what is the right answer to this? And there are there are competing arguments on either side, which makes the position of the news organization so crucial. Right, exactly. And they, they did, in calling it, it does have an impact. It's a totally plausible situation. It could happen. Absolutely. Where did that come from, the idea of burning ballots? Yeah, we thought of a number of different things that could happen. And there are historical moments. You think of the Reichstag fire, you think of other fires that have influenced things. And also hanging chads, if you recall. Hanging chads. Yeah, 2000 is the other one, right, which is which was incredibly close and in which I guess Fox helped change the national mood in that year. Which gets us into Roman. Every character has their own angle on the election. It's not always clear what's motivating them. I want to go character by character with you. Let's start again with Roman. He is so all in for Mencken. You never quite, you've seen that relationship when he was negotiating over the ambassadorship, but this is, he's quite intense on Mencken. Yeah. And you know me, I'm sort of sometimes reluctant to kind of get into the whys and the who's, but you would say maybe Roman has lost a father and maybe he might be in the market for somebody in that role. So that's one thing that might be brought to the table and a bunch of other psychological things which fit him to lean towards an authoritarian. Right. He claims he's doing what Logan would have done. Do you think he's right or does he have a distorted idea of what his dad would have done? That's a great question. And it's one I would choose not to answer because I think that's the, you know, as a lot of this latter season has been, is about the different people, but especially the three kids who are in contention to take over, wielding the idea of what Logan would and wouldn't have done. And it's an interesting question on what basis you even decide what Logan would have done. And they all have decent arguments, I think, right? Correct. Um, we'll get to Shiv and the others in a minute. But he's quite performative because he's so intense about it in those scenes. Yeah, he's clear-sighted, I guess, which is a great... You'd say that Shiv and Roman know exactly what they think. They have both some political instincts. Roman's are more nihilistic, maybe. Mm-hmm. But Kendall is the one who's caught in the middle who has some feelings on either side. But yeah, Roman doesn't really have many doubts. And, and it's, it's a very comfortable feeling, right, when your sort of political instincts are allied with what also is going to get your paycheck to get delivered on time. Let's move on to Shiv. She and Roman are polar opposites. What does she fear most about Mencken? Is she worried about the fate of the country or how much she's trying to gain power to making sure the Gojo deal goes through or doesn't? Well, that's a bind that I always find particularly delightful. Maybe that's too uh, warm a word, but to, to unpick. When characters' motivations to do the right thing are tangled up with what serves their interests best. Mm -hmm. It's a dilemma about what motivates politicians and people through the ages, right? Why do you do the good thing? Because you want to be seen to be good, because it serves your interests better. And I guess that's what particularly pisses Kendall off is when he starts to feel that her professed liberalism is merely preening, is that's what blows his gasket. Absolutely. One of the things, though, she's called hysterical twice in this episode, and that always drives me crazy because she's a woman. Roman's the one who's actually hysterical. Um, In the writer's room, how did you talk about gender dynamics? We do talk a lot about gender dynamics and I guess how Shiv has had to operate amongst powerful men as she's grown up and how that might have made her psychology 
fit around powerful men, and but she's also self-aware about that to a degree. In this episode, I don't know if that, those discussions were to the fore, but obviously there are those certain words that you've picked out which kind of ring out, right, as to a woman. And I don't think, I think Roman knows exactly what he's doing when he mentions witches or hysteria. They ring clear as a bell and they do almost make her lose her shit because they're precisely chosen to do that. And then with Shiv and Tom, after last episode's huge fight, which was so disturbing, she apologized first. What makes her do that? That's a really good question. And I hope it's another one of those where emotion and interest are braided, right? If I was arguing, as I might have done sometimes for the self-interested version, she would like him to be at least open to discussion with her today Mm -hmm. on the other side of it, well, on a very practical side, she needs to tell this guy some pretty soon that she's she's pregnant. Why does she do it now? This is kind of a busy night. This is kind of, well, I think maybe 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 at least whether she knows it or not is part of the problem in doing it tonight. May also be a attraction in that I guess she's one of the more emotionally literate characters on the show. But does she really want to talk it all through with Tom? I guess you would say if she does, she has chosen a pretty inopportune moment to tell him. Yeah. Oh, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, he's skeptical about whether the baby's real, which really got to her. Her face, you know, just just collapsed. Why is that his first reaction? It's not something most people lie about. No. Why is it? I think, honestly... And you're leading me down into talking about the characters and their motivations much more than I normally do. So this is a very good interviewing and bad interviewee-ship. But I think he is playing for time, honestly. I don't think there's a scintilla of doubt in his mind. I, I I guess it's a mixture between playing for time and also a fuck you to somebody who's withheld this rather important news and then deployed it on the most busy night of your life. Mm -hmm. That would be my guess. But I'm open to suggestions. I think he doesn't believe her. You do? Okay. He doesn't know what she's capable of. Fair dues. I was like, wow, he doesn't really actually believe her. Maybe that's true. I don't think he was trying to hurt her. I didn't didn't think that was, that was his first instinct that she's a liar. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you've persuaded me. Come come into the writer's room next time. (laughs) (laughs) So his mind is all over the place in this episode. He bears a lot of responsibility as the head of ATN. Yeah. But he also doesn't make the final decision, but he has some great comedic bits around that, like when he demands that Greg bring him coffee. Let's listen to that clip. Greg, I have to be clear. I have to. If I get drowsy and I miscall Colorado, instability, right? Then the U.S. loses credibility. China spots an opportunity, invades Taiwan, tactical nukes. Fucking shit goes kablooey and we're back to amoeba. It's a long way back from pond life because you failed to get me a double shot. Okay? <laughs> he actually doesn't call. They The family calls, uh, you know, which is really funny. So what's his biggest fear here? Because you can't imagine he has any responsibility for the country. Uh, I think he's scared for his career. He knows he needs these big numbers. Right. And he wants what maybe is the first thing we all want when we go in to do our job each day. He doesn't want to come out of it looking like a prick. He wants it to work. He wants a night that he can say, I did it. And I think we can all flatter ourselves by feeling, you know, the conjuring images of the Republic teetering on our shoulders. And Tom's not not immune to that kind of self-aggrandizement. How much power do you think he really thinks he has? 
Well, when we talked, and we talked a lot to the people who make these decisions, you, it's titular, right? The decision desk comes and tells the head of news, and then the head of news will check with Tom. So he gets a, it's a dual key system, and he gets to press it as well. But really, if all, the, all his underlings are telling him it's done, you're not going to countermand them unless you've got some very big reason. And then from the top, too, they're the ones making the final decisions. He has to carry out. Yeah, and they shouldn't be. And even in most news organisations, that is not the normal way it happens. But owners sometimes seek to put their influence on the um, table. He's also fired the woman who might have been the one who had the real power. Sid certainly was more comfortable on a night like this. And, um, yeah, she was offered up by Shiv and the, particularly Shiv as, a, as a, something of a peace offering, you, could, you might say. Right, exactly. And then there's Kendall, who's basically paralyzed for most of the episode. Roman, Shiv, and Connor all have some political viewpoint. You don't even know what Kendall's politics are. And of course, he's also has the issues around his family. Does he have any? Mm, great question. Yeah, I think he has probably some liberal metropolitan values. If you went out, met this guy at a party or dinner, I don't think you would find him saying egregious things about sexuality, race or class. He knows what to say. Mm -hmm. But what does he really think? Does he have some of his dad's kind of flinty, nihilistic view of what people really want. I think that's in there too. He, um, he also has an adoptive child of colour and that's something which he is evidently thinking about, has been made to think about. So he's got a lot going on in there and then he's also got his base material self-interest which is maybe latent until it's really fired up by this feeling about his sister's hypocrisy. Right. Rava and Sophie bear the consequences of someone like Mencken. Do you think he realizes the danger he puts his kid in or does he care? I'm, I'm reminded that just the Montana governor just signed a bill, anti-trans bill, and his son, who's 32, uses uh, he and they pronouns, urged this governor not to, yeah, not to do so. Talk to me about that, like, because he knows, he, he does feel worried about this for sure. The most generous interpretation would be it's always difficult for us as human beings knowing when the moment is, when the thing is happening. And, you know, it's worth restating in this episode, they don't elect the president. The president will be elected by the, you know, electoral college after a, a legal fight, which is not over at the end of this episode. Sure. So you've we've always usually got a some kind of barricade to hide behind and throw up our hands or wash our hands, as Shiv says, and say, look, this is what I had to do. So... I think he manages to not think about that when the moment comes, which is seductive and easy to do. Right. Now, let's, let's listen to this scene between Kendall and Shiv, which I found extraordinary. Uh, let's play this. Look, sh 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 shall we be totally honest in here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have sometimes felt like I could do it, you know, like I should do it. Me. Uh -huh. Just me. But I don't want that to be an end to the, the family thing, right? I would just, I would like to be able to talk openly about that feeling, maybe. Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Mencken is kind of Roman's guy, so that's complicated. Yeah, right. And honestly, I feel threatened, maybe, by their relationship. And so I want, a piece of me wants to not support that. And... That's maybe in there, pulling away from Mencken. Uh-huh. But also, you're a good guy. Well, I don't know. Sure. Thank you. You are. I don't no, know. No, essentially, you're, you're a good guy. Essentially. 
essentially, not not actually, but it's essentially. Um, talk to me about writing that scene. And is that important to Kendall to think of himself as a good guy? Oh, yeah. I think that's very important to him. I think that's very important to him. Yeah, it's one of those scenes that I like where there's a, a lot going on and where one's true um, essential humanity and one's the character's desires are braided in a complicated fashion and you can see how you can hear in Sarah's brilliant performance how uncomfortable she is knowing that she's both telling the truth and lying at the same time she's trying to get the end that she wants and to do that she needs to deploy a lie and Kendall is being I don't know amongst the most frank we've ever seen him and I don't know whether whether you would think that you know he's sort of withered into truth by being you know like the wax melting away in the the heat of this this situation or a more cynical interpretation that he knows that you accumulate capital by apparent vulnerability and honesty. I wouldn't put the final marker on what he's doing, although he sounds like he is trying to be genuine at that point to me. So I find that fascinating when you're trying to grapple with what to do and there are conflicting impulses. He's, of course, never doing it because Mencken's terrible. It's because he's Roman's guy, right? And he tries to admit that, tries to admit it. Yeah. Another perfect example is how the Roy sibling dynamics are impacting national politics when Kendall and Roman have that steak versus chicken discussion. Uh, it reminded me of a discussion my brother and I had over, there was a restaurant that would give boys two desserts on one day. It was always, it's boys day. Boys get two desserts, girls get one. But it was never girls day when we went there. Oh, that's bullshit. And I said to my brother, you can't take two desserts. You have to refuse and say that we need to have a girl's day. And he was like, well, I wanted two desserts. And I was like, you horrible person. So tell me about writing that scene. It's very different than the way Kendall and Shiv open up. It is about he wanted steak and Kendall wanted chicken. So they always had chicken. I like remembering they're a family and that sometimes they can be talking about national politics. And sometimes the thing, the cudgel that comes to hand or the the emotional rationale behind an argument is something that goes back all those years. And I think, you know, Roman feels like you fucking thwart me, you two gang up and you protect. And I think that's what he finds particularly irritating. And maybe it's a, an impulse politically in the country of people being told what to do by people who think they know better is a very irritating to the person who feels they're being patronized. And Roman's had a belly full of that in his life. Right. Absolutely. And I, you don't even know what Shiv wanted. Did she want salmon? I don't know. <laughs> That's true. Two puddings. Two puddings. Exactly. Never got them. My brother, he traitor. Anyway, when Kendall learns that Shiv is working with Matson, he immediately shifts. Like, I mean, it, that's what it's all. Again, it's not about policy. So why is this the thing that pushes him over the edge? Well, he can tell when she talks to him, he realises it wasn't quite right the way you were acting before. So I don't know whether he knows, or he, but he, it all fits. And I don't know if we've talked before, you and I, about the thing we had from the writer's room that was mentioned about Federer, uh, like Roger Federer, the tennis player, early in his career, having all the right shots, but not knowing when to play them. And that's something that we always thought about for Kendall and that he's somewhat adept and he can do some politics, some finance, some presentation, but he sometimes lacks the knowledge of what to do when. And I don't know whether he's doing the right or the wrong thing, but he when he sees that his sister has betrayed him, he has no doubt anymore. Mm -hmm. Like Logan would do at certain points, he just, that's what we're doing, fuck you. And so he gets a certainty, a dead certainty from that feeling of betrayal, which is intriguing. The episode ends 
with Mencken's acceptance speech, although he hasn't won yet, really, technically. How much uh, did you want to differentiate Mencken from Trump? And how is he different? Uh, and also, Justin Kirk doing it after Angels. I saw him in Angels in America. It's oh, such unlike him. That's a heartbreaker, No, yeah. he was so good. <laughs> <laughs> he was such a good man. And now he's terrible. Terrible man. <laughs> we want the world to feel complete and not not a satire in a kind of cheap way. So he's evidently more eloquent and rather more ideological figure and therefore maybe I would say feels more chilling, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was in our minds, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. He uh, Shiv says that he doesn't just say the bad stuff, he believes the bad stuff. And you hear bits and pieces of it in the background, which I think is the best part. Like he'll say some terrible anti-immigration thing while they're talking. So what's the difference between power plays, which these kids are doing in true belief? Yeah, what is that difference? Hmm. Robert Caro's written, you know, four going on five volumes, and I don't know if he's got to the heart of it yet. When you get a really complicated, and in LBJ's case, a really efficient politician, they're so wrapped up. It, you know, you only do what you think you're going to be able to get done, and you do you do it because you're going to be able to get it done, or because it's anyway. It's it, in really, in I think, in a really good politician, those things are so tightly intertwined. It's hard to unpick them. Not that it's not fun to try to. And do you, what do you ma imagine with Mencken? Because uh, sometimes I think a true believer is less scary than a power play person because a true believer, at least they believe what they believe. Yeah. I mean, up to a point. <laughs> right, right. You, who do I think is more scary? Well, no, I'd say a true believer. Some people are just not going to, as Kendall says at the end, not going to cut a deal. And I guess that's that's more scary to me. Okay. As always, I want to share our favorite lines from the episode. Here's my favorite. I never wanted, it was always fucking chicken. So because we had so much chicken when we were kids, I have to like the fascist? Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite line or moment from the episode? I authored this one, so I can't say a line, otherwise I'll implode. But what's my favorite moment? I was very taken, because it was one of those things you were like, I think this is good on the day, but maybe it's going to get cut. When Greg walks away from Jess and you see Jess remaining, and I guess it, it speaks to that thing of like, you never quite know when the moment is. And it's probably not then, but if it's any moment, it might be that one. And these things slip by in the night and you and you don't quite realize it. Yeah, her face was interesting. And she was trying to get him without explicitly. Of course, he never is going to because he's such a. You're so tough on these characters, Carrie. Give them a break. They're just trying to do their best. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's definitely not trying to do his best. What's it called? What is he like a quizzling? Quizzling is the word I'm looking for. Um, but she, her face is just, uh, that she's even trying is yeah. kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, it was a great episode, a little terrifying. We'll see what's going to happen in the next one. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, Jesse. Thank you very much. Now it's time to get into the real world of Succession with two political consultants who help Succession writers create this episode. I want to welcome these guys to the podcast, Ben Ginsberg and John Klein. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. I want you each to introduce yourselves and, and give just a short background so people understand where you're coming from. Why don't you start, Ben? Well, sure. Thanks for having me. I practiced election law for 38 years representing presidential candidates, congressional candidates, state candidates was involved in the Florida 2000 recount and uh, other various election mashups over the years. And uh, so it was great to be able to talk to the succession folks about these episodes. And John? 
I have been uh, back and forth between traditional media companies. I was president of CNN and executive vice president of CBS News, where I oversaw 60 Minutes. And in between all that, launched several streaming startups and an AI platform for media that we sold to Apple a couple of years ago. And here we are today. Here we are today. So when you were brought on as consultants to the show, what were you asked to do specifically? Why don't you start, uh, John? You know, I was on set a few times and certainly very intensively during episode eight this season, but the main role, I was never in the writer's room. The main function was blue skying at the end of every season about where the next season could go. Mm -hmm. And then as Jesse and the team shaped out what they were thinking about, they would send those thoughts around and invite us to critique uh, what could never in a million years happen, what's plausible, what else could happen, et cetera. And then as the writing got underway, the writers, Jesse and the others, would reach out periodically to ask, well, okay, we're thinking about a scene where, say, Tom has to get advertisers back on board after Kendall blows up the whole cruise ship scandal. What would he say in that meeting? Who would be at that meeting? Where would that meeting take place? Would there be food there? Would there be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then they would send the drafts of scripts. And mind you, there were 20 drafts of every script, but you'd read all the scripts to look for specific lines that didn't belong or felt wrong, make suggestions or look for things that should have been there that that weren't. And what about you, Ben? Well, I got uh, calls from Jesse and from Frank Rich, who I had known from other projects and areas, mm -hmm. said, we may want to uh, weave in something about a presidential election. What are the possible scenarios? So they had a young, talented writer named Justin Geldsoller call me and we had a fun time talking through scary election scenarios. Fun, fun times, Ben. Good, great times. Yeah. This is the way I live my life. And in early September, Justin said, well, we've selected one of these scary scenarios. So now help us plot it out. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the specifics of Milwaukee and what transpires there. And then it was an iterative process. There were a bunch of emails with questions that they had as they were developing the script. Give me an example. Oh, one of them was, how does Milwaukee count absentee ballots? And what would actually happen if there was a fire in Milwaukee? So I got Justin on the phone with Claire Woodall Vogue, who is the elections director for the city of Milwaukee. And we got physical space in which they count ballots and what the warehouse would actually look like and what procedures they would follow. So it all um, it all played out. Like John, the scripts kind of kept coming. So Jesse and some other writers are British. John, how many of the questions were peculiarities of U.S. elections? There were a number of those. Um, the British aspect would creep in in the form of little Britishism expressions uh, that they would throw in. And you still see some of these creep in. They say, yeah, a lot, mm -hmm. where we would say, right, or okay. Or they say, shall we go to the other room? And they said that a lot. And so you'd be on the lookout for those. But there weren't that many. They had their arms around the U.S. electoral system pretty well. What was the question for you? What was a particular question to you? Oh, they had, you know, the touchscreen malfunction that we saw. What might happen? What might go wrong? What would they do in that case? 
Right. Down to when we were on set, the ATN anchor showed up and nobody was in a red tie. Right. And if you watch Fox on election night. They're in red ties. Yes. Have you ever had a screen malfunction? Oh, that never happens on 24-hour cable. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. You know, the, what, what you're always counting on is that there's just so much that you're putting out there that there's always someplace else to go while you fix the problem, which is sort of what they do here. Right. So we get to see both Mencken's and Jimenez's campaign headquarters. Ben, you've been inside of rooms a lot like this. You were central to the Bush-Cheney campaign in 2004. What did you tell the succession writers about what it's like for these presidential candidates on election night? Yeah, they portrayed it really well. I mean, when the presidential candidates are in that position, they and their staffs are just walking on eggshells the whole time. And so what I thought was really well portrayed was the way the candidate is generally in a bubble with his family because he doesn't want to hear from all those obnoxious aides that are telling him things until he absolutely wants to know the results. And then a small army is summoned. So when a character would go into the room where the candidate was, the way people would separate, the way there were piles of food, the way the candidate and his Secret Service detail would sort of dance around to be sure the protectee was in fact protected, was all really real, the layers of security to get in. Right. I have to say, this team was really, the creative team was really obsessed with authenticity down to the that level of detail. And you know, even how would they tell Tom that there was a live shot ready to go? What words would they use? Right. Also, the bodega sushi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a lot of bodega sushis in, in newsrooms, I've noticed. The episode ends with ATN calling the election for Mencken, a far-right candidate. No one thought Mencken had a shot at winning, which reminds me of another man people thought didn't have a shot at becoming president. How much were you trying to mirror the shock of the 2016 election? In this case, he wasn't quite the winner, right? John, you go first. Well, you know, my favorite line, I think, in the whole episode is when Mencken is with Roman at his headquarters suite, and he says, if I win, this all takes care of itself. If I lose, I want this reported correctly as a huge victory for me. Right. And that that sums it up, you know, the upside down world because they create their own reality. And that's that, you know, that we're living in this age where what's true is what we say is true, period. Period. What about you, Ben, this idea of declaring that was, of course, a big deal in the Bush election at that time is who got to say they were winning first? Yeah, I mean, it is sort of recount law 101 is that you want your candidate to be able to declare victory, even in a tight situation. So as the legal proceedings and the election contest play out, if you go down in the counts because they're stealing it, they're taking away from you. Mm-hmm. And so that whole scenario was really predicated on that notion. I mean, of course, what was interesting about this was the calling of the pivotal state. Mm-hmm. And then the business dealings that went on around it. And it is probably true that a news organization would not make a call under those circumstances with 100,000 ballots unknown. And so that was the really interesting part to play out. Not only the timing, but then the counts and the sort of references to what will come in the next two episodes as this continues to play out in the background. From both your perspectives, what was the most important thing of the show to get right about an election like this? John, from the media side? Because I don't think they would have called that with 100,000 ballots burnt. No. I mean, it's not theirs to call until there's something concrete 
to call. There was nothing to base that call on. But I think what was so interesting was you saw the chilling effect of corporate interference on editorial, and you see how Darwin, Mm -hmm. their decision desk guy, folds at the critical moment. Right. And you see how Tom goes from, at the beginning, he tells Roman, hey, this is my call, not yours. But in the ultimate scene where they decide we're calling it, Tom literally says, well, look, this is your call, not mine. It's that slide when there are no more guardrails. Right. And it shows you how we're living in a time where the rules-based international order is coming into question, but the rules-based editorial or journalistic order is also coming into question. Right. What about from the campaign side, Ben? You want them to call it, right? Or you don't? Well, if you're Mencken, you certainly wanted them to call it. So the writers were incredibly stout in being sure that factually this all played out. So the way the numbers Mm -hmm got reported on election night so you would have enough ambiguity about who won the state and how many were still outstanding or burnt in Milwaukee was really interesting to see. So what was important to get in is that what's called on election night is not the official count. The state's certification of the votes doesn't come in Wisconsin till December 1st. But having momentum is important, saying I'm the president, oh, I'm the president. Yeah, it's it's key. Again, you you want to be in the position of being ahead. And if your count goes below, it's because they're taking it away from you unfairly. Right. Yeah. And of course, ATN was pivotal in setting all that up. It may not have been called by any other network, which is what made it so uh, significant. Right. One of my favorite parts of this episode was Connor's candidacy crashing and burning. He doesn't win Kentucky, his best shot at a state. And he says, alas, Kentucky, alas, vanity. How would you rate Connor's gracefulness in losing, John? Uh, Non-existent, (laughs) uh, perhaps. (laughs) And still looking for the edge. Can he get that Slovenia ambassadorship out of this? I loved his concession speech. I happen to be a billionaire. Sorry. But honestly, America, you flunked it. I guess you're going to have to find some other poor mooks paps to suckle on. The corrupt bipartisan system zombie marches on. And so I call out to my friends tonight, to my people. I say, conheads, I salute you. And America, be afraid. Be warned. For the conheads are coming. Thank you. God bless America. Wow. That's some speech. John, if you were running CNN, how would you cover this concession speech, if at all? Everything always depends on what else is happening in the moment. Right, of course, yeah. So... Presuming there was a little bit of a lull, you could take it live or you could roll on it, record it, and turn it around and play a little taste of it. It's not really important at all. No one would really care. But how would you? Would you mockingly cover it? Would you say, let's have some fun with this? No. Nobody has any fun with anything on election night except for when it gets a little off script and it gets late and they're tired and they're sitting around. We had I was there for the 2008 election. We had just swarms of consultants. I mean, on purpose, we just flooded the zone with everybody. And they all got a little punchy later on in the evening, which was nice, but, you know, they tend to stay on track. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that Connor, unlike Roman, who epitomizes the kind of juvenile sensibility Mm -hmm. of the alt-right, which is just like 
self-interest, impulse, who cares, and then no idea what to do or care about what to do if they get power. Connor actually thought he had a vision, delusional, but he had things he would do. And he would right. always spit out his tax plan and all of that. And to see that just sidelined completely was uh, interesting. Did you then talk to writers about how to write a good concession speech? <laughs> yes. I mean, there are indeed some good ones out there. This may not have been it, but he probably went off script. You know, one of the great things about that um, that speech was that he probably articulated what every losing candidate thinks, which is, America, you flunked it. What about Mencken's speech, either of you, John? Um, it was kind of frightening, and he had sort of a menacing tone. What conversations did you have about that speech? I flashed back to Charles Lindbergh at America First rallies, you know? Oh. Like, well, it only took 80 years, but they got there. What, what really hits when you watch it is the instantaneous cloak of conceivability once they've declared the race. Mm -hmm. And it illustrates the power that they had. We worked with them on the idea that just calling the race does not make Mencken president because it's not up to the network, but it does confer that cloak of legitimacy. And you saw that there. A hundred percent. Let's talk a little bit about the burn ballots in Wisconsin. H has anything like it happened before, Ben? It has happened in the sense that there have been natural disasters before that got in the way of voting, Hurricane Sandy being an example. Mm -hmm. And there have been instances where they had to to basically throw out an election because of cheating. A North Carolina congressional race a few years ago, Miami's mayor's race. And as the script was being developed, there was also a bill going through Congress called the Electoral Count Act mm -hmm. to sort of readjust the law that guided the 2020 affair. And there is a provision in that about what you do in the case of a natural disaster or people can't vote. So there were lots of legal options floating over it. What you would do in a situation like that is a little bit unchecked. Essentially, if you didn't count the 100,000 votes, you would be disenfranchising 100,000 people. Right, exactly. And the way Milwaukee works is you do know who actually cast the ballot. You don't know how they cast the ballot. So then you might let the people revote. But if you let them revote, who gets to actually cast a new ballot? So it would have been a happy hunting day for the Society of Hourly Billers in the legal profession. Was there any worries that including a detail like this in the show might inspire some real world ballot burning if it works? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of a concern about that. But it's also true that many people are talking about many scary scenarios. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the issue as you went down the road was what exactly was the statewide margin? Because if the statewide margin was greater than the number of ballots that were cast in Milwaukee, even if you didn't know what they were, you would be able to go ahead and certify the vote. So the writers wanted a lot of flexibility in the way the numbers would play out. But it would be a battle royal in the courts. So this crisis felt very reminiscent of Florida recount. You have to be careful in covering this, right? Because you don't want to prematurely say what's happening before you know. Yeah, the ghost of that 2000 election still haunts newsrooms everywhere, especially in cable news. That is a scar that is still visible. And they become, to their credit, they become super careful about what's reported and not making the wrong projection. But it would certainly have them on the tenterhooks that you saw in, in this episode. 
They understand the stakes, not only for the Republic, in fact, to a lesser degree for the Republic and to a greater degree to themselves, to their organization, their brand. Well, it seems like their brand matters and their business matters more than the election itself. Although you're conscious of the impact on the world. I mean, this is a consequential decision. Well, Kendall is, and yet he still makes the decision, right? And Roman isn't. You know, for a guy who's been so scattered this entire series for four years, he suddenly laser guided from the very beginning. Remember in that early scene in the conference room where he says to Kendall, this is the day, man. This is the day of maximum leverage. And he gets that. And if you chose, if you're not encumbered by scruples or ethics, you can do anything and you can accomplish anything you want. Which he does. They end up calling Wisconsin Vermeke on Roman's orders. Let's listen to that. On what precedent? By by what authority? Uh, by the power of me, the CEO of Waystar, telling you what to put on the telebox mouth people. Uh, I don't think we can do that, guys. I think we can do it, Dar. If we call it and the, the, the others went his way. Right. Well, look, there are still outstanding states. There's Michigan, Ohio, Georgia, Arizona. It's really not that big a deal. It's one state. I'm, I'm worried it's not a decision that I could necessarily... Uh-huh. Yeah, thank you. And everyone respects you, Dar. But this isn't actually a numbers thing. I mean, the Wisconsin Elections Commission, the Milwaukee Election Commission will go to court and the camps will litigate it mm-hmm. and it'll be a jurisdiction fight that I think make in my shape. But, you know, I, uh-huh. we can't, I yeah, can't just... That's, that's great. Uh, but I'm just going to say we're good. And that's on me. The votes that exist have been tallied and that gives Macon the state. But you don't, you don't make the call. I make the call. We're going to make the call together. You can't make the call till okay. I make the call. Okay, so I'm, and I'm not going to make you do anything. So who does get to make the call in reality? Who is the power here? Is it Data Guy? Is it the head of the network like Tom? Is it the owner? Uh, Ichi, John first. So at CNN, given the fiasco of 2000, in the subsequent elections, they decided that the president of the network would make the final call. So that was me in 2008. And my bosses told me, it's going to be you. You're not going to, it's all you, man, you know, (laughs) which was pressure and was a pretty straightforward decision. But we rehearsed the choreography of this. And look, I'm not a mathematician. I was a history major and I wasn't steeped in every Mm -hmm. precinct the way that our decision desk was. When our decision desk told us it's Obama and we're pretty sure of it, we just double and triple checked. And then uh, all eyes were on me. In, in that newsroom, and then I gave the thumbs up and we and we went with it. If something sounded wrong, if it sounded like they were rushing into it or there was something they were fighting, there were a couple of key precincts that they weren't positive of, I would have said, let's just wait. There's no prize for being first. Nobody remembers who was first. Well, they kind of think there's a prize for being first, right? Yeah, but you have to work against that as an executive. You really, you, from the beginning, we just always sounded the message of let's be accurate, let's not be first. It's foolish because- Viewers can only watch one network at a time. Right. So no one knows if somebody else reported, but certainly back in those days now, of course, it would flash across. Yeah, I switch between all of them. But and Ben, do you want to force them to make a call? Is that very powerful on an election? Yeah, you do want to force that. I mean, one of the things that was absolutely accurately portrayed is the way campaigns do talk to the news organizations on election night, mm-hmm. feeding them their numbers, feeding them their spin on where the trends are going. And, you know, it really all goes back to 2000. And after Florida was called the first time for Al Gore and the Bush campaign got on the phone right away 
and started talking to the networks and saying why the projections were wrong. And that gets into the data geeks like trading numbers and looking at trends and, and key precincts so that as things evolve, the campaigns are, are really trying to shape the decision. Sure. Which is why you keep the reporters away from the decision desk people. So the reporters spend the night on, you know, phones to their ears, glued. You know, I have a vision of Gloria Borger running around back, you know, in the hallways at CNN, fielding multiple calls from everybody working her, and everybody else is is getting that too. Yeah, and the campaigns know who's actually making the calls, and it's not the reporters. And there are rapport, good campaigns, the rapport between the people actually making the calls and the campaigns is not a election day phenomenon. It's developed over time. So I was interested by the fact that Shiv, Kendall, and Roman weren't allowed to be on the news floor during the election night. Normally, management wouldn't even be allowed in the building. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, upper level management like that. I mean, I, I was, you know, my office was two feet from the studio floor, but even I didn't wander around there. I mean, I, I had editorial responsibility for the network, so I could have been there. But certainly my bosses, all the corporate people stayed far away. They weren't They weren't there. They weren't there. But who can force the policies if they show up? Well, you'd take a run at it if you were the president, as Tom does. I mean, I think they got that very correct, where Tom just tries to enforce the rules, so to speak. But really, at the end of the day, if they really wanted to force the issue, mm-hmm. it's nothing you can do. Absolutely. So at the end of the episode, Roman says they're just making a night of good TV. I want to know, this is the last question, John, you finish up in our current media landscape. Has politics just become a form of entertainment, as Roman's talking about, a night of good TV? Well, you know, there's always been this temptation, I've heard it a lot, to treat politics like sports. Hey, it's really a sporting event. There's one team or the other team and everybody's rooting for a team. Mm-hmm. But actually it all has such consequences and I think that the public understands that. When they're watching on election night, the subtext isn't just that you're rooting for your team. You are also hoping for a certain kind of life as a result. And that hasn't changed, at least as far as the audience is concerned. I think that the people who manage media companies can often forget that. So mm-hmm. you think about it on an election night when every network is dealing with the same set of facts, what it's going to come down to is how well you convey those facts to the audience. And that doesn't mean making light of it. Mm-hmm. It means making it as clear as possible. And that ultimately comes down to the combination of your whiz-bangy graphics that convey information. The point of the touchscreen wall was to deliver information with clarity. But what also matters is the people who are conveying it. And producers hate to admit that, you know, the talent really can make a difference in that way. Uh, But just as Jesse Armstrong, when I first met him, I asked him, "What, what makes this show so amazing? And he said, without skipping a beat, the actor's. We, we can write it as well as we write it, but yep. without them bringing it to life. And I think the same thing holds true during election coverage. And actually, they're the ones that usually are like just a second, just a second here and hold people back from sort of more breathless coverage, I've found. Which the audience wants. They don't need just a show. Right. They really want to know. And which the campaigns crave. <laughs> which is a show, which they want to show. Anyway, this is uh, terrifying and fascinating at the same time. I Sadly, it resembles quite a lot of election nights that we've been having more and more lately. Thank you so much for this conversation, and thank you for giving us a lot of insights. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
I want to thank my guests, political consultants Ben Ginsburg and John Klein, and of course, the evil mastermind himself, Jesse Armstrong. At this point, I can't even tell who's up and who's down. Everything is so bleak. The Roys are burning this country to the ground. Next week, we'll be back to talk about Episode 9. There are only two episodes left, and there's only so much time left for new alliances and betrayals. You know there's going to be betrayals. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts so you never miss an episode. The official HBO Succession podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Elliot Adler, Ben Goldberg, and Noah Camuso. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Kenya Reyes, and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts. And I am, of course, Kara Swisher. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week after we have an all-night rager with Greg and the old man. I danced with an old man. Yeah, he didn't want to dance, but they made us dance. He was so confused. I drank things that aren't normally drinks.